Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. Welcome to this podcast of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One. Climate One brings together thought leaders from around the world to advance solutions to global warming. The Commonwealth Club is a nonprofit, nonpartisan forum open to the public. Join us online at commonwealthclub.org. Good evening and welcome to tonight's meeting of Inforum, which is a division of the Commonwealth Club by and for people in their 20s and 30s. I see some others here. With a mission to inspire debate around political and cultural issues. My name is Paul Hawken and I'll be your moderator tonight. Uh, Tonight's speakers, you... Uh, have seen is the recipient of Inform's 21st Century Visionary Award honoring young people who are shaping the future. Youth has always been a hallmark of Adam's identity due, no doubt, to his precociousness. And for years, Adam Werbach has been induced again and again, as you heard already earlier this evening, as the 23-year-old youngest president ever elected to be the national head of the Sierra Club Uh, the largest environmental organization in America. At that time, he was praised virtually by everyone in the environmental field. And nowadays, working within and on behalf of large corporations uh, who are trying to become more green, he is sometimes reviled by the very same people who admired him then. But I think both positions are emblematic of Adam's approach to his life and the environment, hands-on, feet first, all in. He was an activist in second grade. He was an activist in, in high school. Uh, he started the largest student-run environmental organization in the United States. He was an activist at Brown University. And the title of his 1997 book, Act Now, Apologize Later, says it all. But it was a compilation of stories uh, that he had heard from citizens that he met on his sojourn, his odyssey, around the country where he tried to visit every local chapter uh, of the Sierra Club. And not long after the publication, he created Act Now Productions with his partner, Todd Gold, to use media to educate and help corporations move towards sustainability. Uh, Act Now Productions was purchased recently by one of the largest advertising agencies in the world, Saatchi and Saatchi, and has been renamed... Sachi and Sachi S, I believe. That's the name. Uh, Adam has long struggled with the environmental movement itself, however. And like any movement, he found it could be rigid, sclerotic, and hidebound. The culmination of his experiences and observations about the movement occurred at the Commonwealth Club four years ago in this very same room where he gave his landmark speech, Is Environmentalism Dead? He signaled his conclusion early on in the speech by saying that he was giving an autopsy. Usually a younger person does not have the gravitas to make such a pronouncement. But in Adam's case, he had been used as the poster child for the resurgence of the environmental movement in the U.S. And the contrast between the PR that he saw and what was happening on the ground was simply too divergent for him. It was, I think, a brilliant speech then. I urge you to go back and read the text. It's online. It seems to me all the more brilliant today, four years later. Before and after, and shortly thereafter, (laughs) 
Adam gave that speech. He was attacked for being a traitor, for being a fool, and many more epithets. Last year, the voices attacking Adam reached a fever pitch when it became known that he was working for Walmart, another poster child, but in this case, the poster child for corporate greed and callousness. I have no doubt that the time he spent traveling the country listening to the stories of everyday folk helped him identify with the 1.3 million employees and the 127 million weekly customers of Walmart. And I suspect we'll hear more about his work tonight. But once again, Adam challenged conventional wisdom with a broader set of values and beliefs. How do we make changes in these perilous of times? Um, Most harm that comes to the earth comes from ignorance. It does not come from intention. What is the solution to ignorance then? Is ignorance effaced by judgment, by blame, by ridicule? Is it wiped out by right, by being right, by being righteous? If American consumerism is leading the world in its destructive impact, then where is the best place to have a dialogue? Is it a panel discussion at an environmental conference, or is it inside a big box retailer talking to customers and employees? In short, how do real people really change? And if there were neat and tidy answers to these questions, it would be called fascism. There's not. The problems are a little bit messier than that, and that's why we need human beings who are willing to challenge the conventional wisdom and wait in to discover what is possible. Adam's mentor was David Brower, and David often commented uh, that there was only one lifeboat and that we're all on the same boat. And we can't solve our problems by one group on the boat deciding to throw another group over the side. America is here. It's all of us, and Adam has engaged in it, listened to it, and through media, let it speak, and tonight he will. And at the end of his speech in 2004, he promised that he would come back. He said he would revisit us in the spring and give an uplifting speech, and tonight, Adam fulfills that promise. Ladies and gentlemen, Adam Burbach. Thank you, Paul, for that uh, introduction. I, um, I, could, I couldn't be more honored um, uh, by anyone um, than being introduced by you. Um, I've sort of said it before, and I will say it again, that I think that the uh, Nobel Committee will um, soon um, recognize you um, because... <laughs> because Paul's work in a very real way leads me to being here with you tonight. Uh, in 2004, I came here uh, to the Commonwealth Club and performed an autopsy, a, a eulogy for environmentalism. Now, I don't know much about eulogies, but generally, eulogies by their nature are the last word on the subject. But this conversation has continued. And I made a promise on that, on that day, that cold December day, as I recall it, to come back in the spring and share a set of solutions as opposed to my critique and, and as opposed to my problems and it took me a few more springs than I thought. And the world has changed a fair bit since that time, but I'm back. And I said then that environmentalism was failing to respond at the scale of climate change. And the basic categorical assumptions that underlie environmentalism have inhibited the environmental movement's ability to consider opportunities outside environmental boundaries. I said... We must not trade our fear of what will come next for our affection for environmentalism. And I remember when I said it, I, I was literally shaking. I, I, I was wearing a dark suit. I, was, uh, I, I felt like a bit of like an undertaker. And I, I knew full well that the reaction would be swift and harsh because, as it turns out, no one likes to be called dead, <laughs> particularly when they think they're alive. So <laughs> I remember that... that 
that spring, long conversations with my wife, Lynn, as she tried to make me feel better about myself and about the, the accountability I felt for my own failures because I was sort of unable to sleep and I was watching cable news shows repeated over and over. And, and something about Nancy Grace being seen over and over just drives you a little mad. And little did I know at that time that the speech was being circulated in places I would never have experienced, namely among senior leaders at Walmart. And they were beginning, with Paul's help actually, to consider sustainability as a core part of their business. And it wasn't until 2006 when I started helping Walmart implement the sustainability program that that the outside attacks really started flying. There was a, a widely circulated piece critiquing my decision to work with Walmart that was entitled The Death of Integrity. Another one just published this week has a more visceral title. I like this one. Adam Warback makes me puke. (laughs) Now, I probably shouldn't be surprised. This is the land of green. This is the town where people get eaten by tigers and zoos. So (laughs) nature has a strong, a strong standing here. There was a a blogger named Cliff Schechter who wrote a piece called Adam Werbach, Walmart's New Fraud Salesman. He said, what Werbach needs to realize is that Walmart is beyond improvement and, yes, beyond redemption. Those who really are forward-thinking need to stop working with this man, certainly stop paying him, and I would dare say, if you really believe in what you say you do, stop returning his phone calls. He has chosen to sell out. It doesn't mean we all have to join him in Wonderland. Now... First of all, I respect any person who uses dare say on a blog. (laughs) And second, tonight, I'd like you to join me in Wonderland. I ask you tonight to consider joining me in building a movement that goes beyond the political to the personal, that views the existential threat of global warming as a chance to change the way we treat ourselves and the planet, that aspires to have one billion active participants across the earth on the way to every person on the planet. Tonight, I'll contend that we need to invest more time in making a difference through our, our routine activities and through, yes, the things we buy every day. And to achieve this, I believe we need a broader platform than green. Since giving that speech in 2004, I've traveled the world trying to find the next trends I've I've seen and will share with you tonight the tragedy of forest destruction for soybeans in the Amazon. I've seen the birth of a new sustainability movement in the rapidly growing economy of Poland. I've seen the inspiring echoes of the two million citizen activist groups around the world. I've seen the twinkling of the next phase of environmental thought, true blue, bursting onto billboards and lifestyles in the mature green environment of Switzerland. And in all of those places... I've seen people seeking something broader than a green or or environmentalist solution to the myriad problems they face in their lives. Yes, they believe climate change is happening, but they also want to feel good about the way they look in the mirror and the way their kids look at them at the dinner table. They want to be part of something larger than themselves without having to sacrifice their identity. They want joy, not guilt, and a little money in their pocket so they don't have to trade down on yet one more thing in their life. Now, building this new movement will require a commitment to the mainstream that we are unaccustomed to here in San Francisco. It's not enough to have a revolution that exists only in coastal states and college towns. It's not enough to have a revolution that consists only of Mac users. (laughs) Something is happening now. Progress seems at hand, and we don't know what to call it. For now, let us call it the sustainability revolution. We are beginning to understand how human culture harmonizes relationship with a living world. But we can't forget that few people know what that word, sustainability, even means. I talk about it all the time, so my daughter, Mila, was like, so what is sustainability? I said, well, it's the way we harmonize the dyspeptic relationship between the human world and the living world. And she said, Daddy, do we have to take a plane to get there? I've come to believe that changing the way people look at the world is more important in the long run than focusing only on the marginal ecological impact of the individual actions they take. Eating organic food should be only one small articulation of the way you take care of yourself, your community, and the planet. And I hate to break it to you, but you can eat local, co-op grown, organic heirloom tomatoes, and you can still be a bad person. 
the common green definition of sustainability or environmental sustainability, as some people clarify now, is mainly concerned with the fate of the planet and how that affects our lives. For me, sustainability has four integrated streams, social, cultural, environmental, and economic, and all must exist in balance. The lack of balance is why almost everyone cares about green issues, but few act on green issues. And that's why tonight I'm speaking about the birth of a new mass movement to complement and expand our existing political efforts. A movement not just for professionals or for experts or for people who can explain photosynthesis and life cycle analysis. A movement we can call blue. Now, this movement will have many faces, but at its heart, it's a lifestyle movement, a, a way to, to live a successful life. And many of us already have a regular practice that can reinforce our, our values. But while political activism is at best a biannual pursuit, shopping is a regular activity for most people on the planet. And if trends continue, it will be for virtually everyone. And shopping can be a platform for change, a way of communicating to billions of people. Shopping. Shivers come over us as he says that capitalist word. Now, before you attack me for sounding like President Bush, who seemed to say after 9-11 we can shop our way out of this mess, let me be clear. I'm not calling for you to get off the farm and into the mall. But how do we bring our aspirations for the world into what we buy? This is the billion-person question. Because the problems we face are even worse than we feared. Between 1990 and 2003, American CO2 emissions increased 16%. And that time is important to me because that was when I was a professional activist trying to reduce that number. During that time, even Europe's emissions grew at about twice the rate of U.S. emissions, even though they had signed the Kyoto Protocol. Meanwhile, half the world's tropical and temperate rainforests are gone. In Indonesia, about 5 million acres a year are being destroyed, mainly for palm oil. 90% of the large predator fish are gone. Species are, dis are disappearing at a rate about 1,000 times faster than normal. A recent study found that there are 287 chemicals in the cord blood from babies in the U.S. 287 chemicals. America now has 2 million people in prison and only half as many farmers. China's leading cause of death is disease, is disease by cancer. In Japan and Sweden, life expectancy is 40 years. Sorry. In Japan and Sweden, life expectancy is 80 years. And life expectancy in Botswana and Swaziland is 40 years. Half the length. The UN says that 826 million people are hungry. And that's a desperate tragedy on our planet. But a much larger group of people, roughly 1.6 billion, are overnourished and overweight. C consider that fact for a moment. Twice as many people on the planet are dealing with the problems of too much food as are dealing with the problems of too little. Now, we can't diminish the need to make sure that everyone has enough to eat, but today's world requires that we have a solution for people who have too much as well. The Center for Disease Control in the United States estimates that 50% of today's healthcare costs are attributable to health risks that can be modified by lifestyle behaviors. The way we live is literally killing us. Now, since 2004, some things have changed. We've seen awareness of the problems we face skyrocket. At no time in my career has awareness been so high. You, uh, time and Newsweek and, and Vanity Fair all are festooned with images of our planet's peril. And maybe it was the catalytic effect of the inconvenient truth, or, or, or maybe it was the, the doubling of gas prices, or maybe it was an unpopular war of choice, or maybe it was the loss of a great American city. But today, the ideas of an Apollo project for clean energy, uh, a major national investment in clean energy technology, which I spoke about here in 2004, those ideas are mainstream. Everyone seems to be talking about green jobs, and if this makes you feel optimistic, good. It makes me feel optimistic Two, but regardless of why public sentiment has changed, it has, and now it's time to take delivery on that desire. And just as, as, as in 2004, I, I told you that we were ill-equipped to foment a movement or to exercise power, today we remain narrowly focused on policy measures as a means for change, and these will be inadequate to reduce our CO2 emissions by 80% by 2050, what we need to do, and greatly lacking if we have an agenda beyond global warming. One key, one key, 
is to shift from a narrow focus on policy change to unleash the creativity and imagination of the global public. In December of 2004, I performed an autopsy on on environmentalism. Today, I'm here to acknowledge the birth of a blue movement because blue is the, the color of possibility As vast and common as the ocean, blue is a platform for sustainability that goes beyond the deep, beautiful green of environmentalism. I'm not asking you to give up on green. Green is good. So chill out. (laughs) Green is the beating heart of the emerging blue movement. Green represents the simple and inarguable wisdom of ecology that all things are connected. But... Blue brings together a broader set of human concerns, from practice to price, from nature to society. Blue integrates all four streams of sustainability, social, cultural, economic, and environmental, and blue puts the way we treat ourselves and each other at the center of our focus. In Michael Pollan's book, In Defense of Food, he he offers a set of rules for eating. Eat food, not too much, mostly plants. And don't eat anything with a health claim. And don't eat anything your grandmother wouldn't recognize. I like that one. He writes, what other animal needs professional help in deciding what it should eat? (laughs) Yet for most of human history, humans have navigated the question without expert advice. To guide us, we had instead culture, which, at least when it comes to food, is really just a fancy word for your mother. Pollen's book is a a call for us to defend what we innately know about food. Whole foods, less processed, eaten in modest amounts, are a healthy path. But we are people who shop as well as people who eat. And shopping is the only other activity besides sleeping and watching TV that consumes our time as thoroughly as eating. Yet when it comes to shopping, we have few cultural rules and signposts to follow in the way that we have with eating. As, As flawed as they may be, Americans know the concepts of fat and calories and cholesterol and sodium. But what do we know about the sodium lauryl sulfate in our toothpaste or the phthalates in in a baby bottle or the embedded energy cost in a cable box or the provenance of the parabens in cosmetics? It's it's enough to make your head spin. Now, the people who are going to have to figure this out are women because women across the world lead the shopping budgets for families. The average American woman spends an hour a day shopping. She is an expert at finding price and value for herself and her family And increasingly, she's looking to make a difference when she does. To date, the only social change movement that speaks to her says one thing. Stop. Stop shopping. Start making your own household chemicals. Grinding your own detergent from scratch. Packing homemade lunch for your children and and hanging your clothes out to dry on a laundry line. And these are noble ends. But everything that we've learned about behavior change is that it happens small step by small step. So it's unlikely that a mom will switch from cheese whiz to tofu. Our challenge is to inspire people to make better choices. But do not underestimate the power of the shopper. Private consumption expenditures in the United States represent about 70% of the gross domestic product. We can either deny this or try to leverage it. And denying it hasn't gotten us very far. Engaging people as consumers as people who shop, allows us the possibility of building a billion-person movement. And to be a part of it, people don't need to join a listserv or pay a membership fee, and they won't get a newsletter or a membership card. No wall calendars. But put most simply, to many people, green means choosing the environment, nature, and the atmosphere over all things. And what we need to do instead is put people at the center of our focus, and not have to choose between nature and people. The earth will survive long after humanity makes itself extinct, like thousands of other species. Blue is a chance to save ourselves, and in so doing, to save the earth. Now, not surprisingly, there's a sense of green fatigue facing many people, largely because it's, it's being promoted as a panacea in ways that it doesn't deliver. Organic American spirit cigarettes. Now, they still cause lung cancer and low birth weight babies. They may be better for the environment, but this is the sort of nearsightedness that the the green fetish for organic creates. Organic is simply one step towards doing the right thing, even though it's the gold standard for being green. 
the real battle among consumers is not between the conventional carrot and the organic carrot. It's between the carrot and the Twinkie. People need to start choosing the carrot. The wholesome food versus the overprocessed food. And that's the battle that moms are facing every day at snack time. And it's a place for us to start our service to her. We want to keep the parts of green that have brought us change and innovation, but let go of the narrowness. Blue builds on the foundation that green has laid, but let's go of the package. So let's step back a bit and talk about the roots for a, a blue movement. In my speech on the death of environmentalism, I traced back the roots of the American conservation movement from Henry David Thoreau to John Muir to Rachel Carson to my mentor David Brower. And all of these transformational figures were trying to protect nature or humanity from harm. Now, to change our orientation from limits to possibilities, we need to know what we're for and not strictly what we're against. The field of psychology went through a similar change almost a decade ago when Dr. Martin Seligman became the president of the American Psychological Association. Seligman noticed that most of psychology and most of psychological research over the last hundred years has been focused on depression and mania and, and what makes people sad and unhappy. And very little research had gone into what actually makes people happy and living in successful lives. And he found, not surprisingly, that there's certain interventions that people can take to actually become happier people. First, you need to get your material needs met. It's absolutely essential. But once that happens, how do we actually live successfully in this world? This is the modern problem that people more and more face on the planet. And he found basically four things. First, you need to have service in your life. You need to be serving something, some higher purpose larger than yourself. Second, you need to experience flow. The, 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 the moment when you're really engaged, when you feel like you're being used at, 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 uh, at your maximum capacity, you need to experience that on a regular basis. You need to experience gratitude and be grateful for all, all the wonderful things we have in this world, the, the, the glory of the planet and the people we live among. And you need to have close connections, people who you care about and who care about your life and you connect to regularly. Now, Similar to traditional psychology, environmentalism, which is basically the political arm of the green movement, is focused on executing ameliorating actions for the planet, slowing the release of CO2, removing removing glycols from household cleaners, or protecting farmland from being destroyed. And while these are absolutely essential political activities that we need to continue, they are not the basis for a lifestyle movement. A, A lifestyle movement requires the construction of a set of practices that make up the way we wish to live our lives. Slowing global warming and protecting our last wild places is a necessity, but it's not the whole end. If we see our goal as moving beyond just ameliorating harm and towards creating the future that we want to share, what can the logic of nature, the green movement, and the best parts of the environmental movement teach us? To help understand this, I want to share with you my experience with what might be the largest sustainability engagement campaign in the history of the planet, the effort to engage the almost 2 million associates globally, the hourly workers who work at Walmart. Now, raise your hand if you've been in a Walmart recently. Wow. So that's about 40% of this audience. I actually asked that same question in this, in this room about uh, a year ago, and the answer was about, of the audience. I don't know if something's changing. But even at 40% of the audience, you have to realize that we're kind of weird. Well, you probably could realize that anyway. But Walmart is the place where people buy things in America. Um, As Paul mentioned, it's something like 125 million people shop there every week, something like 200 million people regularly, and roughly 89% of all Americans end up shopping there at least once a year. This is an American institution as much as the White House is. When I was first approached about uh, uh, working there or working with them, I refused because I hadn't been in a Walmart. And actually, I had sort of snuck into one once because I was really desperate and there was no other store around. But but I I, I was embarrassed of it, so I didn't want to even admit that at the time. Um, But I started hearing what they had set out to do. And they basically set out three goals. First, produce zero waste. Second, be powered by renewable energy. And three, sort of sell only green products. 
And for the largest corporation on the planet, the largest corporation in the history of the world, to commit to those three things was sort of mind-boggling. It, it, I, literally, when I began to conceive of what that would mean, um, I began to shake again. Because I don't know. I mean, I've read all the books, but I don't think there's a book that says, how do you transform a $400 billion corporation? There, there, there's no model for it. It hasn't been that way. There's never been a, something as large. And I began to get more comfortable because... I have to say there's a certain activist romance in the David versus Goliath story, and I've always tried to play the, 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 the righteous David. But I began to, get, began to get more comfortable with the odds of working with a Goliath and trying to figure out a way to get the spirit of a David in the heart of the Goliath. I first flew down to Bentonville, and I remember sitting in a, in a, in a, kind of a conference room or a, a little auditorium, and they started every meeting out, by doing the Walmart cheer. Well, you all know it, right? All right. So, okay, see? Well, I'm not going to make you do it. So, I was horrified, right? I mean, horrified because, first of all, I was, felt like, what do I do? Do I clap? If I clap, am I supporting them? Am I in, uh, did I do this? So I, I kind of sat with my arms like this, and then I meekly clapped, and I felt weird. And then there's this part where, you know, there's a wall dash mart. That's called the squiggly. And when you get to the squiggly in the chair, you, you do the twist. <laughs> and I, I did that, and then I felt really lame, like I hadn't done it well. <laughs> but I was eventually uh, enamored by the people who work there. I mean, when you talk about a group of people, 1.3 million Americans, people who work in the U.S. at Walmart, it's it, it, a, a cultural fabric. It's something absolutely incredible. And we started working with the very basic concept of saying, well, if we can make sustainability matter to these people, to these folks who live complex lives and have challenges every day, then maybe we can make it matter to the rest of the people who live in this country. If we can make it matter to 1.3 million, maybe we can make it matter to 200 million. and we can make it matter to 300 million. It became a, a group of inventors collectively and we worked together to create what we called the Personal Sustainability Project. The, the project was designed by associates themselves in Plainfield, Indiana, Broomfield, Colorado, and Tampa, Florida. And the heart of the project was a simple voluntary commitment that we called a PSP, a Personal Sustainability Practice. A PSP we defined as being smart, that it sustains the planet, it makes you happy, it affects the community, it, it's repeatable, it's something that's actually a practice, and that you're actually taking visible action. There's something happening in your life. So this could be biking to work one day a week or, or parking in the spot that's farthest from where you're going or, or changing your lights to CFLs or caring for a park. Um, my PSP is to make healthy breakfast for my kids every morning. Um, my wife Lynn's PSP is composting, um, to, to get better at composting. Um, Lee Scott, the CEO of Walmart, his, P, his first PSP was recycling, and now it's getting in shape for spring. And the associates of Walmart began to take it and take it for themselves there, there are roughly 10 captains in every Walmart store, in Sam's Club store, so roughly 4,500 stores across the country, each of whom were initially given four hours a, a week to, to figure out what this would mean and to talk to their fellow associates about it. And after about a year, basically we're finishing, beginning the second year now, about a half a million of those associates had a PSP that they could name and they were continuing. Something in their life that they were doing that was smart, that sustained the planet, that made them happy, that affected the community, that was regular and continuous, and something that was taking visible action for them. The, the behavioral idea behind PSP is a simple one that we call nanopractices. Nanopractices are the thousands of tiny things you do each day that make up your lifestyle, how you tie your shoes, the type of shoes you wear, your choice of socks, how you fold your socks, and whether you wear your shoes indoors. Instead of trying to change the big things about someone's identity, whether they're a Democrat or a Republican, whether they're a Hillary supporter or an Obama supporter, uh, <laughs> We start by finding daily or recurring practices that can express values. A personal sustainability practice at its most basic level is something that's a repeated action that's good for you, your community, and the planet. And initially, as my background is, we started focusing on strictly environmental PSPs, but we quickly learned that the environment was only an entrance point. I first met Jan Bennett in Broomfield, Colorado. She's a a spiritual woman, quick with a smile. 
her thinking more than anyone else's uh, formed the ideas I'm sharing with you tonight. She's a Walmart associate, and she's originally from Mississippi and describes herself as a lifelong learner and was as excited as anyone I met about learning how sustainability works, what exactly is going on with our atmosphere, and how recycling can be a business driver. She volunteered to become a PSP captain and soon had almost everyone in the Broomfield store involved in the project. But if you really talked to Jan about what was going on in her life, she would tell you, God, I, you know, I'm 75 pounds overweight, and that is not good for me. Uh, I, I've just been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, she says. And she told me, and, and I'm having trouble, she said, figuring out how to, to, to eat differently every day. That's what I've been told. And, and to, to, to take my medication just to remember to do it. And she said, what really matters to me is, is my daughter. I, I, I've somehow lost connection with her. And her daughter had recently told her that she didn't want to have kids because uh, she just didn't want to. And this, this was what was going on in her life. And pretty soon, her, her recycling PSP um, moved on. And she told me that her next PSP was, was, was a diet. And I remember the conversation well, because um, when she told me that, I actually was a little disappointed. I was, really? Um, I was just, I thought it was pretty ordinary for this extraordinary person. And she said, what do you mean, really? <laughs> well, I just figured that, and I said it like slowly, as if she couldn't hear, sustainability uh, has to have something to do with protecting the earth. And she sort of patted me on the shoulder and gave me a little kind sigh. Where do you think all that food is coming from? And what about sustaining me so I can sustain my family? You'll figure it out, she said. (laughs) This uh, 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 humble... um, woman uh, taught me more than I can um, uh, explain. And it, it, it's not just the associates who've gotten involved, it's their families. Um, Amanda Adler, um, her, she's eight, her mom, Ruth, works at, at Walmart in Vancouver, Washington. So she's 11. Um, and as Ruth got more excited about PSP and what she could do, her, her daughter, Amanda, started getting curious and created her own PSP, which was recycling. Amanda is uh, on the softball team. They, they live in Battleground, Washington. And a, a few weeks ago, Amanda was finishing up drinking out of a plastic bottle and went to put it in her backpack to recycle it for her PSP. As she did, her teacher said, what are you doing? And he, she said, well, I'm recycling this. Well, he said, well, just throw it away, throw it away. And she said, he said, no, I'm recycling this because it's my PSP. And he said, are you talking back to me? Said, it's my PSP. Get the <laughs> she sent her to the principal's office. Uh, now, um, she, she, uh, uh, she got detention. Um, uh, and when Ruth got home, she couldn't believe it because Amanda's a straight-A student and doesn't get detention. Um, and when she heard what happened, she and Amanda um, decided to kind of set up a stakeout for the mayor of the town, a battleground. And they went onto their lawn and they, they opened um, uh, the chairs and sat and waited for the, the mayor to walk by because they knew that he walked his dog by their house. Um, and when he stopped by, they told her what happened. They told him what happened. They said, do you know that there's no recycling programs at, in, in battleground schools? He said, no, we should have one. And the next day, had lunch with the superintendent of schools. Well, within a week, they had recycling programs at the two middle schools and the high school in the community, and they dropped her detention. <laughs> and the Adlers are just getting started. At dinner, uh, they make sure there's no TV, um, and they use that as family time. At the softball league, they got rid of the deep fryer, and, then, and now they're serving up organic vegetables. Ruth says, it's not about Walmart, although I'm proud that they gave me a chance to get started. Sustainability is now my mission. And I'm very pleased um, tonight to welcome Ruth Adler, who came and joined us. Ruth, will you stand up? <laughs> I encourage you to get her to get to know her tonight. So let me step back and, and recall that there are three desired outcomes for the blue movement. First, to measurably improve the quality of life of people who join. Second, to engage as many people as possible in the effort. And third, to increase the effectiveness of their activism. 
The primary tactic is getting a billion people to create their own personal sustainability practices. Today, there are two major forms of activism to combat problems ranging from climate change to child poverty, structural change activism and direct outcome activism. When you volunteer at a school, you are engaging in direct outcome activism. When you lobby the school board to improve the textbooks, you're engaging in structural change activism. My critique of environmentalism in the United States is largely with the effectiveness of the structural activism that it has undertaken over the past 30 years. Few laws have been passed, few regulations have been changed, and certainly none of them has been up to the scale of climate change. My colleagues Ted Nordhaus and Michael Schellenberger from the Breakthrough Institute have been strong voices saying that the movement has also ignored the critical role of government investment in order to make clean energy fast, clean, and cheap. A recent article in the journal Nature entitled Dangerous Assumptions argues that the UN has significantly underestimated the emissions reductions required to stabilize the amount of carbon in the atmosphere. The technological challenge is at least twice as large as the world has come to believe. Now, the, the movement of which I speak can lower energy demand somewhat and create public demand for change, but it can't make the investments required by governments worldwide. As David Brower liked to say, it's not a choice of either or, it's both and. I'll say it again. Do not, choose, do not confuse my advocacy of personal actions and using the platform of consumerism as a rejection of political action or a lack of commitment to strategic investments from the public and private sector. I spent my entire life working on those, and we certainly need to continue them. But if you believe it's important to engage an audience as large as a billion people, we need to speak in words and encourage practices that solve the everyday problems that people face. And there, there are only a few institutions on the planet that have a billion person reach, not the U.S., not the U.N., and not even Walmart. Who reaches a billion people? The nation of China, the nation of India, Procter & Gamble, McDonald's. And why do you rob banks, as Willie Sutton asked, because that's where the money is. Why do you work with corporations in India and China? Because that's where the people are. So let me share a story with you that shows why I believe we've only begun to tap the power of this vein. I, I went down to the Amazon, to the confluence of the Tapajos River and the Amazon River with Greenpeace a few months ago to see what I believe is the most successful story of how shopper activism, consumer activism, has actually made a difference in the last few years. In fact, there has been a moratorium passed uh, last year that has stopped the new logging of forests in the Amazon for soybeans. And this, this to give you a sense of scale, Brazil is the, is the, is the fourth largest emitter after the U.S. and China and Russia, if you, if you count deforestation for CO2. And 70% of Brazil's emissions come from deforestation. And, and that deforestation is largely happening in the Amazon. And the largest to con- contributor to the deforestation in the last five years has been the clearing of land to grow soybeans. Now, soy, soybeans, didn't, didn't arrive in, in Brazil until the 1980s, but it, it took off like heroin. And pretty soon, farmers were changing from cattle ranching to soy. Most of the trade is in the hands of a few companies, ADM, Cargill, and Bungie. The soy is used for animal feed, cooking oil, and increasingly often as a biofuel ingredient. This is not for edamame. I met a woman named Iveta who runs a local uh, workers' cooperative, and she told me the story of how after Cargill came in 2003, they faced huge pressure to sell their lands. 90% of the families didn't have official title, and many were kicked off. It was a violent effort. Um, There have been 1,500 workers assassinated in the Amazon in the last 15 years. In the one town I visited called Jenny Papa, a farmer named Casa Grande claims all the land is his. Now, A year ago, there were 45 families here with a new church and a new water system, and they were almost finished with a rural electrification process. But Casa Grande led the efforts to frighten people from their homes, and today there are only 12 families left. When you're there, you can see the charred remains of the houses of families that resisted. The smell of smoke is still fresh, and the weeds are growing up quickly through the old thatch. The school is now closed, and it's difficult for the remaining families to stay. I uh, carry around with me some of the soybeans that Casa Grande grew right there as a reminder to me about what the cost to the people of the Amazon are is for 
the way I live. Now, this is one story with what could be a happy ending. In the last year, the cutting stopped. The major soy producers have enacted a voluntary ban on buying soybeans from newly logged forests, and it came about through a European consumer campaign led by Greenpeace to put pressure on McDonald's to stop buying chickens for chicken McNuggets that were produced with soy from the Amazon. McDonald's investigated and then put pressure on its soy producers. The soy moratorium has protected millions of acres so far, and I'm happy to announce that last week the soy producers tentatively committed to keeping the moratorium indefinitely. This is an incredible achievement for consumer activists. Now, if activists could change the world through chicken McNuggets, imagine what we could do with an even larger movement. Throughout history, consumer movements have been central to revolutions. The French Revolution was a call for bread, which Marie Antoinette famously and fatefully responded to by saying, let them eat cake. In 1960, four African-American students sat at a segregated lunch counter at a North Carolina Woolworth, Woolworth store in the seats reserved for white customers, and Gandhi rallied a nation against imperial British rule with a simple and radical call for a march to the sea to make salt. Today, our response to shoppers as a social movement is much like our response to corporations who wish to be leaders, which is, I'd rather you just didn't consume, or in the case of corporations, I'd rather you just didn't exist. But climate change and our own self-inflicted diseases don't give us the time for this sort of preciousness. Corporations and consumerism can be vehicles for change. The question is what type of change that will be. I told this to the head of a very large environmental organization. I said, I want us to build a billion-person consumer movement. And he said, a billion-person consumer movement? I want to build a billion-person anti-consumer movement. I said, great. Go to it. (laughs) Shopping gives us an opportunity, a platform, to reach more people than we can reach through traditional forms of activism. The bottom line is that this is an effective methodology to get people engaged. Now, that methodology is actually a science in the marketing world. They call it shopper marketing. And along with digitalization, it's been one of the fastest-growing segments of marketing in the last few years. Shopper marketing is the effort to reach people in shopping mode, the time when they're at a store online or offline and searching to buy a product. And unless you know how shoppers shop, you, you can't hope to help them use that shopping to change the world. Shopper marketing is the translation of grassroots organizing into the commercial world. Now, 70% of all shopping decisions are actually made in the store when people get there. And this is a rapidly uh, developing science. So let me ask you a couple questions. How many uh, men do you think uh, who take jeans into the fitting room will buy them compared to women? More or less? More, More, right? So 65% of men... will buy a pair of jeans that they try on versus only 24% of women. But they also know, you know, uh, how many browsers buy computers Saturday before noon, about 4%, as opposed to after 5 p.m. And they also know that uh, if you take a basket at a store, you buy more things. 74% of shoppers with baskets make a purchase compared to 34% of shoppers without baskets. Now, since I spoke here last, my company, Act Now, grew to a staff of about 45 people And we decided to merge into the global advertising firm of Saatchi & Saatchi. Now, for us, Saatchi was an obvious choice since it launched perhaps the most inspirational uh, consumer product, the the Prius. And it represents the world's largest uh, consumer products company, Procter & Gamble. And the reason for us was simple. Saatchi's CEO, Kevin Roberts, convinced me that this would be his life work transforming one of the world's great advertising companies with 7,000 employees in 84 countries into the world's most powerful sustainability advocate. First, by making Saatchi the bluest agency on the planet, and then by helping all of its clients transform their businesses, their products, and their communications to improve people's lives, build the blue movement, and radically dematerialize and decarbonize the products they sell. And the type of work that we'll do to make this happen is to understand how people actually Shop. So which item is more likely to prompt a trip to the store, running out of toilet paper or Diet Coke? Diet Coke. Well, why? Because you have to have it. So uh, Diet Coke has no substitute. Toilet paper? 
Now, how many people here create a list before they go shopping? Okay. The dream of every consumer products company is to get a name, a specific brand name on that list. So it's Sun Chips and not Chips, or Tide Cold Water and not Laundry Detergent. My dream is that Blue becomes a meta brand uh, so that our billion advocates will buy only as long as the products they put on their list are blue. The, the way a small number of people today, hopefully a lot of people in this room, will only buy a product as long as it's green. So we've discussed why we need a movement that's broader than green. We've shown how consumers actually shop through the shopping cycle. And now we need to get to the hard work of how we take these needs and form them into a blue movement. Our purpose is nothing short of building a world full of happy people contributing to a healthy planet. Yes, we need to stop global warming, but that's not all we need to do. There are three outcome goals. First, to measurably improve the quality of life of people who join. Second, to engage as many people as possible. And third, to increase the effectiveness of their activism. In the next five years, we need to build a billion-person movement representing over $1 trillion in consumer buying power, consumers who are maintaining their PSPs and acting on them when they shop. To create a world full of happy people, we need to go far beyond reducing our individual carbon imprints. Happiness requires that the material Maslowian needs of the 9 billion people projected to be living on the planet by the end of the century are met. So we need enough resources for all of them. We live on a planet that's two-thirds water. And I've noticed that we don't have gills. We live on a planet full of consumer choices, and we don't yet have the faculties to choose well. Blue, or a shopper's movement, needs you to invent it. It can't be invented by anyone. It's a platform. It's an idea. And everyone is welcome to catalyze around it as long as it improves life at a personal community and planetary level. But it has to start now. It starts by you setting your own PSP if you don't have one already. The process of personal improvement is never-ending. And if you already have a practice, great. Recommit to it or begin another. Once you have your PSP, share it with a friend. The, the possibilities are endless. You could start placing plants next to light switches because we know that, since, that people can serve more when they see nature near a light switch. If you travel a lot, get your company to declare a no-fly week once a year. Start buying concentrated detergent and washing your laundry in cold water. Eat one less meat meal a week. Write a thank you letter to someone you haven't spoken to in a while. Each individual personal sustainability practice does matter. President Bush just sent out $150 billion worth of checks to the American public. You may be getting a $600 check. How are you going to use it? If just the Americans in the movement bought cars with the same fuel economy as the Prius, we would save over 3 million barrels of oil each day. And that's more oil than America currently imports from the Persian Gulf. If, if each time we plug something in, it only drew power when it was needed, we would save $5.8 billion annually on power bills. If every time we turned on a light, it was a compact fluorescent, the savings would be equivalent to taking five, 50 million cars off the road. If every time we washed laundry, it was in cold water, we would save 75 billion kilowatt hours of energy, which I'm told is a lot. <laughs> but this is only the beginning. It doesn't start without your commitment to your own practice, but you have to ask someone else to start as well. And, and, and then I hope you'll join me in asking the smallest and the largest institutions on the planet to encourage the people in their universe to start as well. Corporations need to step up and I'm asking them to make every product of practice a step towards a healthy lifestyle. We've been working with the Center for Disease Control, who will be launching a campaign based on principles similar to Blue's called A Healthiest Nation. Walmart will only accelerate its efforts in sustainability as they move from their 2 million associates to their 200 million regular shoppers. This is only the beginning. But most importantly, I believe that, Ruth, your daughter Amanda's softball team will soon have 100% PSP participation. We need websites, we need shelf talkers, we need writing, we need songs, we need good food, we need you. If you tell me we can't get to one billion people, I'll tell you that with the people in this room, the people listening to the radio, and the people reading these words, we're on our way there. I'm done convincing people that the world is going to end. This is how the world is going to begin again. When you look at the planet from space, you don't see social problems, you don't see economic problems, but you do see a little bit of green and a whole lot of blue.
I invite you to join me. Thank you. Thank you, Adam, for the radio audience. You're listening to the Commonwealth Club Inform Program, and tonight we're talking with past Sierra Club president, founder of Acknow Productions, and CEO of Saatchi and Saatchi S, Adam Werbach. I'm Paul Hawken. This is now your moment, you and the audience. There are two microphones, one in both aisles, and we invite you to ask questions of Adam. And I would like to start the first question myself, if that's okay. And um, I know that you have recently sold your company to uh, Sachin Sachi, and I'm wondering, um, having worked with Walmart, which is the largest corporation in the world, I'm wondering what it's like now to scale up and become a big company yourself. For me, it's been exciting. I actually feel like, I mean, I, you know, as you mentioned, I started, my first job was really the president of the Sierra Club, so I feel like, you know, I was kind of raised by wolves in terms of my business education. (laughs) So I've been in some way in a a learning um, about how business works. And the other thing I've noticed is that um, I have a deeply American perspective, um, and Saatchi uh, Saatchi is a global company. So my experience has been very humbling to understand that um, you know, we, we live in a global – this, this is a planet. Uh, and uh, the American perspective on these is um, both behind and ahead. And that's been, I think, probably the, the exciting part. And um, since no one has stood up yet to ask questions, I think you're all shy or, um, or uh, there is somebody here on the left. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, I'm wondering, you talk about – uh, when people go to the store, that your vision is that they only have blue things on their list or that they only buy blue things. Uh, so I'm wondering what the mechanism for that would be and what it would look like. Is there something like free trade or organic, some kind of transfer uh, type criteria? And if so, what would those be? Well, it's going to be a combination. And frankly, they, need to be in, they still need to be invented. Um, it, this cannot happen without um, uh, collective governmental action. Um, you know, the EPA should have been secreting these, these, uh, the, the labels uh, for years now, and it's just been asleep at the switch for the last eight years. Uh, so retailers have been forced to do that. Um, individual companies have been forced to do that. The best thing that we can have for ourselves is to teach ourselves how to actually discern whether a product is blue, whether it's actually good for us and good for our life when we're down the, down, walking down the aisle. And that's really the best guarantee we have. So what we're asking is that Companies that on their own catalyze that hopefully the government will catch up and help begin to set a set of regulations and guideposts for people to do it, but that ultimately individuals are responsible for picking the thing that's good for them and that matches what practices they have in their lives. Yes, on the right here. I think it's fantastic that you're meeting people where they're at and that you're meeting people where they already are and embracing. So in Walmart, working with CFLs, it's about cost savings, and then they see the broader benefit. But I'm struck by what I hear from the IPCC and others about the dramatic trend lines for the state of our planet going down so quickly and the incrementalism, what it, this sounds like, one by one, one first step, one next step. How do we really scale this at the urgency at which we need to be acting, and how do we get people to get it in their gut so quickly that they then scale it quickly? Thanks. So is this enough? I mean, this is, you know, Paul, for me, this is the biggest question that comes. People are afraid that individual action is a substitute for collective action. And the truth is we need both. But, you know, it's not just the fact that the food that we have on the shelves is is unhealthy. It's that was what people are buying. It's what people want. It's what people are asking for. And what we need to do is change the demand as well as the supply in this case. So I, I appreciate your question. I, I, you know, I think we need to change both sides. What, what I haven't seen is, is very much effort placed on trying to create the demand. You know, when I go into Walmart stores, my experience is that there's not a long line of people looking for organics. You know, there's not a long line of people looking for, for the solutions aren't very good for them yet. And we need to find some way to have the consumers actually push the change as opposed to it just being decided at the top. Yes, please. Adam, thank you. I'm uh, curious about how you propose to deal with the issue of more. 
So green is, in my understanding, a lot about less. And consumerism, and particularly corporate profit, is about more. Buying more, more of whatever people want, and always having a progressive increase. And uh, it seems that there must be limits to growth, and limits to more. And there's, there are even limits about how many people can have so much more. Um, and so I'm curious how you deal with that when you're talking about working with corporations. We deal with limits honestly. There are limits to our, what our natural systems can provide. There's limits to what our bodies can sustain in terms of the violence we do to them through the things we eat and put in our bodies every day. Um, there's limits to what we can stand sitting at a desk typing on a computer all day. And we see that as our failing health. We see that in our failing natural systems. We see that in our atmosphere filling up with carbon. Those, those exist. The question is how do we make people choose desirous of making that change. When, when I said it's, it's, it's a battle between the, the, or the, the carrot and the Twinkie, that's sort of right. You know? And the first step is to getting them to choose the carrot. And then they can understand why it needs to go to an organic carrot. It, it's a sort of a next step. But piece by piece, I have enormous faith in humanity, in people's ability to make the right choices for themselves, not because of the limits, but because it creates a better life for them. And that's, in the end, what we want to do is to, in fact, make sustainability irresistible. It's, it, it's so good that it's palpable. It's that you can taste it and that you want it. It's not medicine. It's something that you want. On the right here, please. Yeah, I have a lot of questions, but the one that I'm just curious about is what you think of the Sierra Club's endorsement of Clorox's Greenworks and how that kind of epitomizes everything that you're talking about here. I think that the... The Greenworks seems like a decent product to me. I think that the way that the Sierra Club endorsed it, they put their logo on it and they said it was a good product, was ham-handed and kind of um, adolescent um, because it was an organization trying to walk into this world but doing so with very little information. Um, it would have been much smarter for them to kind of endorse a whole class of products. And, you know, I, for example, Greenworks has this, the, the, the tagline, finally, Greenworks, as if to say, you know, it doesn't work poorly like seventh generation or another set of products. And I don't think that the Sierra Club should be picking winners and losers among consumer products. It should be setting a bar and then encouraging people to, to, to go above that bar and encouraging a race to the top and sort of saying, you, you're the best. But that's, that's what I don't think the role, the role of the Sierra Club should be. Yes, sir, on the left. You mentioned four dimensions of lifestyle, uh, the social, cultural, economic, and environmental. And uh, I'm curious if you could just elaborate a little bit further on how your plans and strategies uh, align with or, or, you know, use those four dimensions. Well, the idea is to keep them in balance, you know, and, and to basically ask people first, what are their priorities? If you live in New Zealand and you're Maori, you, you may be looking at preserving your culture and looking how you live will help survive and, and, and support the culture where you live. It, it depends. It basically depends on the individual. I just can't assume that because green is the thing that matters most to me, it matters most to everybody. And, for example, the thing that drives me nuts is when, when, when green activists say, we need to raise the price of energy, we need to double, we need $10 a gallon gasoline. And I go, wow, you're choosing that someone should have the medication they need that month or, or that they should sleep in a, in, a, in a cold house because they can't afford it. And you're choosing because you think it's more important. You think that, 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 that climate change is more important than health care for them or for, than heat. Um, that, that's more important. And, and that's just where the balance needs to come in. But I think we need to look at what that individual wants and, and serve that first. Yes, here on the left. Um, so in the future at stores, you'd see green uh, basically competing with blue. Can you talk a little bit about that tension? Or I, I would love a, you know, just a completely chromatic store. So you see, like, you know, <laughs> um, shopping by color fits very, very well. Um, no, I, I, I actually see uh, green as, as a core part to the blue concept. That you know, that green, green is essential, and, and I, I'm always going to be a green consumer. Actually, that's what I choose. It's what I choose. But other people will choose something different. Um, so I see green as continuing, as important. I, I support green fairs and green festivals and green products. That's fantastic. Unfortunately, this will have to be our last question because we've run out of time. Hey, Adam. Um, uh, I'm thinking about Majora Carter, who... Um, yeah. So you know who she is. So uh, just to explain, she, uh, she was uh, an Olympic torch runner, 
uh, unfurled the Tibetan flag and was immediately thrown off of uh, the route. She's also, um, she, she also created Sustainable South Bronx. So this is a big bundle, and I guess I'm wondering, how do you tie in identity politics um, and solidarity politics and liberation nationalist politics into something like what you're talking about? Is there a way to do it? I, I, th I mean, I think so. I mean, this is, if we talk about cultural identity, if we talk about, I mean, but the truth is, is that I, I guess it's not for me to invent. Um, what I invite people to do and encourage people to do is use this other platform. We, we sort of have this blind spot in our head. We go, well, it's shopping, it's capitalism, it's consumerism. We must not focus on it. We must not talk about it. It is evil. And maybe, maybe, or, or maybe we should try to leverage that and invite people who are, are inspiring leaders for change to begin to work on that platform as well. Adam, thank you. Let's give Adam a big hand. And this meeting of the Commonwealth Club and Forum is adjourned.